my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. In April 2019, American writer Jared Hudson wrote an article for the University of Northern Colorado titled, Why All the Limp Wrist? Black Gay Male Representation and Masculinity in Film. Citing 14 films released between 1976 and 2014, Jared analyzed how Black gay characters are stereotypically represented. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in English that includes a triple minor in women's studies, Africana studies, and writing. That is a lot, and that's amazing. Also from the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, and a Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing from Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Today, Jared joins me to share his professional and personal experiences, as well as to talk about Black gay or Black LGBTQ plus representation and Black and LGBTQ plus mainstream media. Welcome, Jared. <laughs> Hello. Wow, that was so, oh, that's so strange to hear like all of that said by a different person and like really like kind of register that. Mm-hmm. I am so honored to be here. And I have to say when I got your email or LinkedIn message, it was completely unexpected and it really made my day. And I'm just very happy to be here. Oh, well, I thank you for being here. Your piece, it really spoke to me on different levels, mainly personal. So yeah, when you agreed to do this, I was like, yes. (laughs) Uh, Where are you based? Well, right now um, I live in Newark, New Jersey, um, where Whitney and Queen Latifah are from. I've been here for about three years, but I've been on the East Coast for about five now um, because I moved here to attend grad school from Denver, Colorado. Well, actually from Greeley, that's where I lived in college, but I'm from Denver. I found um, a place in Newark where I've been for the past three years. I live in a really nice location in terms of getting into the city. Okay. I'm not familiar with that part of, I have family there. I know there's a difference, I guess, culturally between New Jersey and New York. Yeah, I would say there is. New Yorkers are, and I love them for this. They're very vocal. They will speak their mind. They do not hold back. They're nice, but they can be, and I say this in a way that is very endearing. They can be like, abrasive but it's just like at least you'll know what they're thinking they won't be fake nice to you um i like to say my social life is in the city but my home life is in newark like where i am now is really crazy i'm at conde nas currently oh wow okay this is one of those jobs where you know the offices i would like daydream about being in there and now i'm there and i've been there for about a good seven months and i am happy that i've made it this far Well, you've done a lot, it seems like, in a short time. I mean, earning your bachelor's first with three minors and then a master's. I mean, my thought process is like, well, maybe this is a time to chill a little bit just Ah! having a full-time job. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It's just like, what does chill even look like for me? I know I just, I hit the ground running. I would say my success is is bigger than me. I owe it to a lot of people, like my village, Mm -hmm. as my friend uh, Jamara would say, because there are no heroes, only villagers. I like that. Jamara Wakefield, that is her quote. I want her to have full credit for that. When I made my um, research project that you read, I was in the McNair program. It's like a 
pipeline to grad school, really to like PhDs, like doctorates. But since I was more on the creative side, I don't want to teach. I want to create. That's where I went for um, a master's of fine arts, which is still, you know, a graduate degree. It's not a doctorate, but it's still like graduate degree. So my path was a little different, but McNair really gave me that push and that drive to really get into grad school. Sometimes, you know, I do want a break, which I think the pandemic offered a lot of us. You know, I, I really got to take another sit back and like really think about what really matters to me. I really got back to who I was like outside of work, outside of capitalism mm. and really got to like see what really mattered. In you mentioned McNair. Is it McNair? Yes. What is that? Oh, Lord. I'm just going to read it to you. No, no, of course. Yeah. I'm going to read it to all of you out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. McNair Scholars Program at UNC. The University of Northern Colorado McNair Scholars Program is a federally funded trio program designed to prepare high achieving students from first generation low income and or underrepresented populations for graduate studies. The ultimate goal is to provide students the experience and support necessary to complete doctoral degrees in their chosen disciplines. I heard high achieving, so it sounds like you really have to be a really good student to get into the program. Oh, yeah. I was juggling five classes a semester on top of having to start putting the bones on this huge research project, which was what you have read. The staff there were great. I had a great faculty mentor, Chris Talbot. Oh, my God. Big fan of her. It's ridiculous to say. Failure is actually probably my greatest fear. I think high achiever or my perception is high achiever and worst critics sometimes go hand in hand. (laughs) And I can like sometimes, you know, exhaust myself. It's just like, talk to me nice and me as myself. Yeah. Just reading what McNair does and is about, it really did set the foundation for Pratt. It really did set the foundation for writing a thesis and being able to network and knowing your worth and not being afraid to, you know, ask for it. So McNair has been academically and personally and like professionally has been very, I would say, sound to my career. (laughs) I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. But my question is, because I think you're the first person that I know, I went to school briefly with a girl from Denver, Black girl, but I was going to ask, like, are there a lot of Black people in Denver? Because I get that from being from Phoenix. People are like, oh, I didn't know there were Black people there. Denver does have a big Black population. Hmm. Growing up, we lived in the Park Hill neighborhood, which is a middle class, upper middle class neighborhood in Denver. And looking back, because it was a majority white neighborhood, it definitely was. And, you know, sometimes there was a disconnect. But yeah, we were about one of the only Black families on that block. Like, we kept to ourselves, but me and my brother and sister, we were friends with other children on the block. But the Black population in Denver, I think this goes for a lot of other places. Like, it's bigger in certain areas. There used to be, used to be, well, gentrification made it that way, but there was this area, this neighborhood in downtown Denver called Five Points, which was back in the day, a big black booming district. Now it's like completely unrecognizable. It's been stripped of that kind of vibrancy and that kind of color. I didn't really have experiences with gentrification until I moved to the East Coast. And I went to school in Brooklyn. I went to school in an area that used to be majority Black, but is now has been gentrified. And there's like this giant gate around campus when it used to be an open campus. And it's like, who is this gate for? Who are you keeping out? 
when I was last in New York three years ago, and I stayed by myself because I really wanted to feel New York. I didn't want to stay with family. And I was in Brooklyn and I was in a, it seemed like a mostly a Caribbean, West Indian area, but you could feel the gentrification and feel it in that I remember walking into a bookstore where it was not of that demographic. But what I noticed, and I think for me, the first time really realizing what that means in a negative way is that these people came into this neighborhood, but didn't become a part of it and kind of treated those people who were a part of that neighborhood for years as if they didn't belong. And I was very aware of that. And it's really just shocking how unaware and sometimes even callous gentrifiers can be. It sounds like you come from a close-knit family. Is that where you get your drive from and what you've done academically and professionally? I would say I do. I definitely grew up in a household where uh, my mom and dad really encouraged knowledge, drive, smarts, ambition. I've always been a type A person. Sometimes it drives me crazy. (laughs) And that's why I think I vibe well with type B people because I can learn from them how to just like, oh, you know, kind of like, lean back and like let go a little bit about the things that don't matter because sometimes I can obsess over like the little details and be extremely particular to the point where I lose myself in them and that can do a disservice to everything as a whole but I think I really learned from my mom and dad to just keep going keep going forward keep pushing yourself unfortunately um, they are no longer with us and haven't been for some time my parents are two of the biggest people I would owe it to because, you know, they set the foundation. I have a lot of teachers as well that I owe it to. It's beautiful when you have people who pour into you. As I mentioned in the intro, it was a research paper. It was one I spent two years on. The funny thing was, I actually finished this in 2015. I don't think it was published, though, until a couple years later, because in your email, you said it was from 2019. It was a PDF and it said April, 2019. I don't know the publishing. I don't know the distribution, but 2015 is when this was officially finished. I see. Yeah. That's the publication date that I have for it. But I guess when it's on different sites or like academic databases, maybe it looks a little differently, but this is from a whopping six years ago. And it's just very weird to know that it is still making its rounds out there and still reaching people and people are really reacting to it because before this interview I hadn't looked at it in some time so I reread it a little bit to bring myself back to who I was and where I was when I wrote it and like where I am now because I don't know if I made it clear in the writing or even in my conclusion but this was not a drag or a ragging on for my femme people out there I mean, I am fem. I was just saying that there is an issue when feminine Black gay men are presented as caricatures in a very one-dimensional way. It gets stretched out to gross proportions when it's all that we see and when it gets more stereotypical as time goes on. I just don't know if that disclaimer came across. For me, that's how I perceived it. What I okay, got good. from the piece <laughs> was that Generally speaking, for Black people, especially coming from the U.S., we have so few representations. 
I know my own personal experience specifically as, as a black gay man is like, yes, that could be someone's experience, but it's not all of our experiences. Yes. That's not how we all present or um, interact with the world. So no, I definitely didn't think it was anything that was negative. I thought it was very concise and it was like, I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, but it was like water when you're in a desert because I'm always looking for (laughs) for this to fuel me even still, because we still are, in my opinion, battling getting more three-dimensional, diverse representations of who we are. Funnily enough, the year after I wrote this, Moonlight came out. That was like my research had grown legs and come to life because at the end there, let me read my own words. Give me one second. This is so weird to do. I had said, marginalized groups are people too. And the more this is realized through various mediums like film, the closer audiences will get to letting the people in marginalized groups, gay Black men, for example, be seen in all their three-dimensional, beautifully human glory. And I feel like Moonlight did all of that and then some it was like a country Jesus moment it blew my mind because I'm like this is what I was talking about this is exactly what I meant there were so many nuances in the intersectionality of it all yeah. Barry and Terrell put their foot in that movie <laughs> <laughs> seeing Moonlight was a core memory for me there were so many things that happened that year in terms of media that really set me on a definite creative path because I've always loved books. Books have always been my first love, but I've always loved movies. It was the trifecta of Moonlight, Insecure, and Atlanta that really made me be like, you know what? Screenwriting. Oh, always. Yeah. Because that combines both of my loves into one form. It combines film, TV, media, and writing. I can write prose like it's nobody's business, but screenwriting is an entirely different format that I am still learning. (laughs) So it was just seeing like how this representation of Black gay men can look and feel in like the way that I was looking for it to do and how it is very possible to write these stories for the screen. That's what I've really been trying to push myself towards to get to, to really like write more, but also actually start writing scripts. I have a great friend. Her name is Lauren Lamel. Uh, We met in grad school. I think she was a media studies. So she's like a filmmaker. Right now, she um, has to be on a shoot. She even brought me along as a volunteer for a film shoot she was doing with her friend Cinder for Cinder's Independent Queer Film called Artists Unknown. But having a friend who's in that career in that industry has really given me more drive to really push myself all in there. And the fact that I work at a mass media company now, but yeah, Moonlight was very revolutionary for me personally. For me, I can watch over and over because there's always something in there. And I'll say from my own personal experience, and I'm so glad I saw it the first time in the theater was that it was so emotional. But you touched on something for me is that entertainment is education. That's what I got from your piece is it's not just entertainment. These images that we get fed, they do inform how people assume or perceive we are to be. I took some notes from the piece that separately Black masculinity and white gay male media exposure have been researched, but we haven't really combined those two as far as what is Black gay male masculinity. I like that you touched on that in your piece. It's different parameters for us. 
they're different goalposts. Mm -hmm. There's like a different rule book. And me being a, as him as I am, growing up and being kind of around this kind of masculinity that wanted to force the femininity out of me by any means necessary and just knowing that who I was as a person was seen as wrong or seen as not man enough. Even as early as elementary school, why do you sound like that? Why do you carry yourself like that? Why not? Why does that bother you so much? I've just gotten to a point in my life where I am so comfortable with who I am now. I love who I am. Thank the stars, nothing ever happened to her. You know, I was ever gay bashed or anything like that. Cishet people who fit that mold, they have more freedom. Or if they were to ever do anything that would be seen as sus, they would get a pass or they'd be able to get away with it. Women more than men. Because again, the parameters are very different between the two genders. And then when it comes to Black men, it's been said and it's been seen where you have to be like a, a rock. No feeling unless it's aggression because that's the only way people hear you. The only language is violence. I am generalizing like a mother, so forgive me. Um, I know this is not everybody's story, but this is what I was saying in my research here. What I've seen, what I've read about as it pertains to Black men, Black men's role in the Black family, in society. And like, why is softness the villain? Is softness not on the table for Black men? Um, like that picture of Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Where Michael B. B. Jordan has like his arm around Chadwick. Chadwick is like holding on to his arm. It's just like a very close embrace. And people were up in arms with that. And it's like, for one, why do you always have to tie sexuality to something? To intimacy. Yeah, to intimacy. These are the things that I think about and that routinely upset me because they're just so unnecessary. Like y'all force yourselves into these boxes that don't do anything but suffocate you. Mm -hmm. Free yourself. One of the things you just talked about was femininity and masculinity and why we as Black men, regardless of orientation, why we can't express more of our feminine side, which I think we all have that in us in varying degrees. But how was that for you growing up within your family or within your community, being able to uh, celebrate that part of yourself? Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, I definitely was not as vibrant or as clear as I am now. That took a lot of unlearning and a lot of introspection to do. It started in college, but before that, growing up, my dad was definitely the man of the house, you know, like the breadwinner. He called me his little man, would put on a suit and say, you look sharp. I really got a good idea of what a masculine man was supposed to look like from him. And it didn't help that I looked almost just like him. I was raised like we went to the church around the corner. I was getting it from a lot of different areas that how I carried myself, how I sounded, the things that I liked were not really supposed to be connected to or right for a man, especially right for a Black man. How do I um, be a chameleon here? How do I still be myself, but in a way where I'm not stepping on anybody's toes, trying to grow through the insults, you know, I would receive about how I was perceived? I, <laughs> I am definitely not one of those gay men or gay people who can do that thing where you can switch your voice. For gay Black men growing up, we had to deal with a different kind of code switching because we had to deal with it among our own people. Maybe I shouldn't tell people 
I like this and that. It took me years to ever even consider coming out. Kids, and this is probably still true today, kids can be mean. So there was some bullying. There was some of that going on. All of my school experiences, aside from higher education, have been mainly Black. And I say this because, again, it was like a different kind of code switch I had to do. I didn't get comfortable enough or confident myself to come out until ninth grade. First person I ever told was, uh, his name is Roberto. And then at the end of the year, I told the girls and we became so much closer. Being able to be authentic about who you are and having people like really respond and love you for that. It's so beautiful. I would say high school is where I really started like, okay, this is me. This is who I am. I'm embracing this. There is nothing to be ashamed of, but I still hadn't told like the most important person. I still hadn't told my dad because it was still like one of those things where, you know, he was a man's man, but 2011 came around. I was a freshman in college. I lived in the queer dorm on campus at UNC. We were truly a family. We were truly a queer family. And it was National Coming Out Day, 2011. And I just felt so inspired and just like, you know what? I'm going to do it. Like all the important people in my life knew except for one person. So I called my dad and I let him know, you know, like, dad, I'm gay. It's National Coming Out Day. I feel inspired. I'm gay. And my dad said to me, I wouldn't care if you were a damn fish. You're my son and I love you. It's beautiful. I'm just very glad that I was able to share like who I truly was with my dad and have him accept that love me. So well, it sounds like you already started the process and what you do as a writer, being yourself, which is, you know, the best example to be, I think, in my experience. <laughs> and I really do believe, especially when we have things like um, RuPaul's Drag Race out in the world, or when you see people like Billy Porter, where it's just like, you know, clothing really doesn't have to have a gender. Wear it if it makes you feel good. I love where we have gotten at a society that more Black men, regardless of their sexual orientation, are able to do that. A friend of mine used to say, are the clothes wearing me or am I wearing the clothes? And I feel like with Black gay men uh, tied to my research, people just haven't been comfortable or brave enough to branch out and really show Black gay men outside of that stereotypical one-dimensional light what is so scary about that? Would that be debilitating? Would that shake the table to show that Black gay men are not a monolith, just like Black people are not a monolith? With those films that you reference in the piece, I think there were 14 of them, did you see yourself in any of those characters? Did you choose those films for that reason? I saw myself in a lot of these films. Like um, Dear White People was a big one by uh, Justin Simeon. Lionel, played by Tyler James Williams, but also in the show, Deron Horton in the Netflix series, who is a very, very handsome man, by the way. I just have to say that. <laughs> this is uh, Dear White People. Yes, Dear White People. Because Lionel was like, he kind of operated like that code switching that I was talking about, that kind of gray area. But he was also, you know, a nerd. He was a Black gay nerd who didn't really feel like if he belonged enough with the Black people because things that were more curtailed to white culture. And then he wasn't white enough for the white people because he was Black. And then also with him being gay, that's a big one in the Black community as a man. It's like, where do you fit? And with Lionel, I really saw myself in it because just like, 
where do you fit when you're kind of like at the intersection of a lot of these things and a lot of these things are not accepted in places where you want to go? Holiday Heart, I love. Um, because, I mean, you have Bing Rames playing this role. You had um, Wesley Snipes doing the same thing in Tu Wong Fu. You have these Rambo-esque Black men <laughs> playing these very effeminate drag queens. Just see like that kind of vulnerability, that kind of emotion and that kind of femininity from persona to dress. Holiday was very maternal. <laughs> my nickname was Martha my first year <laughs> at college. So I can relate to Holiday in terms of that, but also like, can Black men be maternal? Is that allowed? Is that able? This is a person who is possible. Really seeing myself in that character. And it was so crazy, like how they went to the Black church, which is a place where homosexuality is not really accepted. So many of us are in that institution. I'm glad that you called it that because it is an institution. (laughs) The skinny that came out when I was in college and it was like representing like the black gay millennial, I feel like directed by Patrick. Yeah. Patrick, Patrick Ian Polk, who also did Noah's Ark. And I wrote it in here that there's that whole thing about Wade and how he feels about Yes, I like that. Would you edit that in there that uh, this character was able to be honest about his being uncomfortable about that? You know, Wade, he is a man's man. He is like the man that all the girls want. And when I say girls, I say that gender neutral. Right, right. The girls, as they would say, like with the G-W-O-R-L-S. How did you say that? Girls. Like the girls. And it's really nice to see because Wade and Noah do fall in that binary of you have um, like the masculine figure and you have the feminine figure. I feel that is so beautiful to me to see because being introduced to like the gay dating apps or the gay dating world, like Grindr and stuff, and just knowing how rampant femphobia is, did the whole mask for mask thing. It's just like, damn, nobody wants me. When you talk about Noah and Wade and how they both represent not the extreme ends of the spectrum, but noticeably enough, it's interesting that you see that more in the lesbian community where it's a femme and it's a more masculine presenting. A butch. Yeah. yeah. But we don't see that a lot in the gay community. We don't. I'll say my own personal experience is I'm usually drawn to more assertive. And I noticed those guys who are drawn to me are usually drawn to not submissive. I don't like that word because that implies weakness. Yes, it discounts so much. It does. Yeah, That's a great way to put it, yeah. What I was seeing was, you know, with the whole master mask thing, and you see it all the time on Instagram, you'll see cookie cutter couples. Men who look exactly alike. They look like brothers. Oh my God, like brothers. And I'm just like, for one, we really need to sit down and talk about the narcissism in the gay community. It is incessant. It's like an epidemic. They have the same body type. They almost have the same face. They're very like outwardly or obviously masculine. I love T.S. Madison. Um, I started watching her a lot, I think right before the pandemic started. I love her YouTube videos, but she would say like searching for masculine traits in a man is a feminine quality. So somebody is feminine somewhere. And I'm like, you have a point. You have a point. I just wish more men could embrace that and see that being feminine is not wrong. And you can even be outwardly 
masculine looking or acting and you can still be feminine and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that but I feel like Wade and Brandon were such a breath of fresh air to me because I got to see what I would like represented on screen and I really 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 do see myself in Noah because they're soft and I say that in not the way that I've been hearing it growing up or not the way that it w- could be seen from say a cishet black man where it's an insult I see being soft as like strength I almost see it as a superpower there's just too many hard and rough edges in the world there's not enough softness especially from the people who we really need it from because if you're this hard rock all the time how am I going to get to know you how are you going to be able to have the capacity to emotionally express yourself to me in that way and not have me have to do all the emotional labor? You see it all the time with cishet Black women and cishet Black men, where they have to do all of this insane amount of emotional labor because yes. cishet Black men were not raised in that way to accurately dig into and define and tell their feelings. And the same thing for Black gay men, especially the ones who identify as masculine and have been raised that way because now they have to deal with this side of them that has been like say Wade for example he's seen as a man's man on the outside world and would be praised as such but the moment he has found out is gay or anything like that that is when it's going to be held as like um, a minus against his character you talk about the emotions i had a visual of trying to crack a coconut with a a tiny little nail I I get that people have walls and boundaries and limits, but at the same time, there comes a point where you can't use that excuse anymore. When are you going to actually start doing the work? When are you actually going to start breaking down your own walls so people don't have to tear up their hands trying to get through to you? And when it comes to these representations that I'm talking about in my research in terms of what I just said, it's like a stereotype that the Black effeminate gay men will be very soft and easily broken. And I just feel like, like you just said, with the whole thing about being submissive, it discounts a lot of other things. Why do we have to frame it like as a punchline or in a way that's seen as negative? Because then it really puts Black gay men who are effeminate or who are feminine in a box, not of their own making, but by how others might perceive them based on what they've been inundated with through the media or society. Right. Didn't take the time to get to know you. Yes. Yes. And so that's what I was trying to do with this research project, because as an artist, as a creative, and as a person who consumes all of those things, I like to critically think about what I'm consuming. I like to really sit down and like unpack and like kind of pick apart what I'm listening to, what is being sent to me, and like how it could really affect people's perception. Just knowing like your value and your worth and really being able to have that shape what your success, what you want that to look like and feel like for you instead of maybe what society says it has to feel like. How do you think for our emotional and mental well-being as Black gay men, the overrepresentation of white gay men, how that affects us. Pandora's box has just been opened. Mm. It is not palatable us mm-hmm. to be put at the forefront of these moments that we curate, that we lead. It has to have a more easily digestible face or manner. Like the whole thing with Stonewall. The film. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm talking about actual Stonewall. But actually, okay, yes, yeah. the film, the film it was insulting. Like, excuse me, <laughs> like, what, yeah. what are we doing here? So, literally, you know, the whitewashing. People are speaking up now and have been in recent years. We are really talking. I don't think it is saying all the time that it, it's coming from like a place of hatred, but I think it is coming from a place of accountability, a place of valid critique. Why is a character portrayed as this, but you cast this person? And then I'm going to get into it because you opened up Pandora's box. So I want to talk about it, even down to interracial relationships and how they're presented in the media. And this is coming from a person who, like, I have had the biggest crush on Chris Evans since I was 12 years old. Like, since I saw Fantastic Four in 2005 to now, I still think he is a very attractive, handsome man. And I mean, how people were perceived this is how they'll perceive it. But I know what I mean when I say it. I'm very critical of my attraction to white men because I feel like I have to be, especially when you see in gay society how much you see interracial gay relationships. Interracial relationships where whiteness is always centered. And I have an issue with that because why is it that when we see a lot of successful Black gay men, you have to immediately wonder, is their partner white? I'm not trying to say, you know, like love has a color, but it's just like, is he really attractive? Do I really like him? Is that me or is that what society has inundated me with? I like to think that I've gotten a bit more knowledgeable about those like quiet influences and unpacking that. But we just see it all the time though in media, like Netflix has this upcoming Christmas movie where again, it is another interracial gay couple, white man, black man, where whiteness is centered. And you have people in the comments who are saying the same thing where it's just like, oh, another interracial thing. Like, why can't we get some black on black love? And I think that is so important to say because I know Black gay male romances or relationships with other Black gay men exist. They're just not as widely known or they're not given the same platform that these interracial relationships are. And I think that it boils down to, again, whiteness being more palatable. I would say if there was ever a sequel <laughs> to this research project, that might be one of the topics, just like interracial relationships among gay men and their portrayal in society and in film. One can't ignore the reality of race. You know, it's woven in, in in so many different ways that, you know, I don't think I can ever be fully aware of. Yes, I can find this person attractive, but let me unpack this. In gay society, masculine white gay men are at the top of the food chain. Again, forgive me, I am generalizing. I know that this is not the case for everybody, but I'm just saying like, from what I've seen, from what I've researched, from the conversations I've had, from what I even see on social media, that type of masculinity has a very big pull in the gay community, has us in a chokehold. It can be difficult sometimes being so aware and being critical. And sometimes I wish I was just ignorant to it all, just so I could be like, oh, just relax and breathe. But I, I have to be on my toes about these things. My concern when there's an interest from someone who's not Black is that they want a lot of the stereotypes that we're all fed, I guess, hyper-masculine. Yeah, that's something I also said in uh, my research, I think, towards the beginning when I was defining masculinity. Please tell me I pronounce this word right. Um, like hegemonic or hegemonic uh, masculinity, which for Black men can translate to hypermasculinity because they have to compensate. They're a man, yes, but they're Black. 
even with a non-Black person expressing interest in. Fetishization is huge in the gay community, and especially among interracial relationships, relegating Black men to just being BBCs. Yes. <laughs> you're not seeing them as a person. You're seeing them as an object. You don't care what they look like. Exactly. You're not seeing them as who they really are. Or what we look like. Yeah. I love Black people. I love my Black community, but also just like, what would it say to my community if suddenly on the gram, I'm in the arms of some um, <laughs> bearded lumberjack? But it's just like, what would that say? Because a lot of the films I talked about dealt with romantic relationships among gay men. And I think that was important because, again, it goes back to that that desirability. I think your piece said something which I, I really related to. I think it was your piece that said this. I, I think most of us are somewhere in the middle. It's just humanity in general. Yeah, a lot of us occupy, you know, that gray area where neither one or the other, we're kind of like a combination of both or an uh, amalgamation of like a bunch of different things. And we don't necessarily know where we fit. When it comes to romantic relationships with Black gay men, it's important to see the marginalized identities within our own communities, like the feminine gay Black men, like actually find love and have those healthy relationships, especially if they're between people of their own race or in relationships where whiteness is not centered, because then it's saying like, okay, this isn't necessarily a gimmick or this isn't necessarily like a vehicle for white consumption. You know, you've shared a lot of great nuggets, and I wanted to ask you, based on who you are today and accepting your authenticity, what would you say to a younger version of yourself today? Not one of these types of questions, Eric, <laughs> please. Um, wow. What would I say? Wow. Probably nothing is wrong with you. You are who you are you like what you like. Because my dad, he used to say, like, don't let people take your kindness for weakness. Living with the East Coast for like the five years, I've hardened up in a lot of different ways. But I like to think I am still a very sweet and kind person, very soft. But I felt like with my dad saying, like, don't let people take your kindness for weakness was him also kind of saying, don't let people take your softness, like a minus or something to count against you. And I would like to say to myself, stay soft embrace that because that kind of cushion will get you far in life looking back at the child that was that kind of fear I can't let people know I like this or I have to tone this down a little bit and just knowing like no you shouldn't have to do that you're fine and you will be happy mm, very well said no code switching needed <laughs> yeah no code switching needed yes I may be perceived as like a person with a limp wrist but at the same time it's like wait a minute it's also not all who I am. See what else is in the mix. Yeah. See what else is there. Okay. Perfumes operate in a, like an olfactory pyramid where you have top notes, middle notes, and base notes. Top notes is what you first smell, initial impression of fragrance. Heart notes are what unfolds later after the fragrance has a time to settle. And then the base notes is the lasting impression of the fragrance, what's left, like the silage. It's like what you'll smell in your clothes afterwards, like maybe the next day. And I feel like when it comes to representation and portrayals of Black gay men and who we are, we really need to not only change how a lot of those initial top notes look, but also really make way to the heart notes and to the bass notes to really get the whole fragrance of who gay, Black, feminine specifically 
men are as people. Spoken like a true writer. Oh, God. <laughs> Very poetic. That was beautiful. I have my moments. <laughs> yes, that was truly beautiful. Thank you for that. And thank you for joining me. And I really, really got so much out of this. And I'm definitely going to share whenever you have any projects, I'll share in the way that I can. I also have my own podcast that I co-host called Scary Crit. Kind of what I do with my research project here. We critically unpack horror movies through intersectional uh, Black focused lens. And what we found in horror is it's, it's kind of hard finding Black horror movies. Horror movies that are either Black led, like behind the camera or in front of it, or um, movies with Black characters in them that aren't like stereotypical. We end up doing a lot of white horror films. Thank you for mentioning the podcast, and I'll make sure to share that in the description. But where else can we find you online? You can find me on Facebook. I'm on there. Um, I am most active, though, on Instagram at Blossoms and Books 93, all one word. Uh, Twitter, you can find me at Great Fairies Clawfoot Bathtub. I'm a big nerd when it comes to video games, and Super Mario and Zelda are my top two. Like in Zelda, in the Zelda series, there's like a, a location or like a place that shows up consistently called Great Fairies Fountain, where Lee can go to heal and talk to like the fairies who give him upgrades. And the music is always so beautiful. Wow. I combine that with Clawfoot Bathtub because my idea of success is when I get a place where the shower and the bathtub are completely <laughs> separate. And the bathtub is like a deep like pedestal, oh, God, yes. maybe even like cloth at one, maybe with the jets, but it is completely separate from the shower. It's like an experience. Doing this today has been very affirming for me. I feel very um, humbled and flattered and very happy that I can add to the conversation the table that you're building or have built, I really hope that maybe this helped someone open their eyes, widen their perspective, and kind of get these thoughts out here and really kind of go back a couple years to something that I wrote and was really close to and like really kind of inspire me again. This is why I write what I write. This is what I do what I do. What really is my passion. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. <laughs>